the larger the sales team is, the less productive it becomes. Our NPS is 54. Average software NPS is 23. I think best in class SaaS is 34 or 35. We spend more time choosing the folks we bring in than managing them. I can easily say that. I've probably spent 40, 50 hours making sure that this is the right person, especially for leadership positions. And then I don't need to spend 40, 50 hours to manage them in, like in, the, in the next six months, right? I would say in the zero to one stage, the number one thing that matters is that your customer values your product, that they would be scared if if it's taken away. This was a big one. I do firmly believe now that you can build a like 100 million enterprise SaaS company. Even if you looked at, you know, India plus some shoe markets in Asia, that's, wow. that was the shock. Like the path is different. You have to know that is the path right from the beginning. Albert Einstein would not have been successful at McKinsey. <laughs>
I think both have their uh, pros and cons. And I would say fund it if you have very clear line of sight into a very high TAM, a potential way to exit, which could either be IP or strategic, but both require certain scale and a clear path on execution. Then definitely fund it because it helps you speed up. Uh, if any of these are limitations and you would rather control the pace at which uh, and you know ensure that you can control your destiny then probably bootstrap but both are probably the right or wrong answer depending on the context understand, understand. how would you describe your company's culture using three phrases or adjectives so i would say we are extremely customer obsessed uh, mm-hmm. right customer obsession always also comes at the cost of sometimes profitability sometimes sometimes scalability etc i would say in the early stage of our journey being customer obsessed helps people make the right decisions when things are hazy and uh, if you have a cap if you have happy customers i think longevity automatically gets taken care of uh customer obsession definitely then uh striving for excellence right it is something that we have to reset ourselves on every two three years as the team grows as we get distributed geographically or remotely etc it's not easy but uh, there is constant uh, uh effort to make that and i would say probably uh being able to support each other in mutual growth uh i we are like we are absolutely committed to that to making everyone an owner to supporting their success um and we strive to do that as we grow uh it's again it's something that requires very conscious effort uh to have each other's back throughout uh, but i do believe that the team has my back and i uh i do believe i have theirs right so on the third one how do you ensure that uh, happens across a company especially when you scale it's not easy i can't say that like the 435 employees uh, i know like i have their back every single time but to the extent that we can one we do it for people that we probably work directly with more more regularly and set the design principles for them to be able to support others right simple things like probably flexibility or Uh, balancing the personal aspect with the work as well we expect people to build long careers here uh, right. Right? uh and that um, if you have an expectation of 8 to 10 years uh right we are only 10 years old and we have people who are 8 years plus at why more right so then they are they are probably going through multiple life stages with us uh, right and throughout that there are their needs might be different uh what matters might be different for them uh, both from mm-hmm. work as well as off work and being able to support them through that journey helping them discover helping them balance what they are really great at uh helping them get to where they really want to get to and many times it might just not be a career goal it might be some other goals right. also uh and being able to build around that is uh, something that we have strived to do i again cannot say that we have done this for all 435 maybe not all 435 have given us a chance to do this too it also has to come from both sides uh yeah. where you decide to make this a long career and you decide to make it work right so but that is the effort and i hope that the examples we have set with people venkar and i directly work with are similar examples they are trying to emulate with the teams that they work with i understand i guess there is a word for it lead by example example hmm. maybe that's another culture phrase that like yeah that is yeah um and finally on the rapid fire what is one truth you deeply believe in that few people agree with you I just feel India is the place where uh you know we have the highest level of opportunity especially India has to be the place where Indians can be more successful 
uh, right? Uh, not many believe that clearly. We've had a like, significant majority of our brains leaving. Mm. Uh, but I firmly believe that. And I firmly believe, you know, uh, people should not miss the opportunity. And if they find problems, those are just opportunities that can probably, they can actually build their careers uh, by solving, right? So, Yamni, talk us through your growing up. Uh, where are you from, uh, early days, any influences that may have resulted in you becoming a founder? You obviously gone to top tier colleges, had a very strong pedigree work experience as well, and then you made you know the jump. So uh, talk us through that the thought process, um, why you did this eventually, what's the motivation uh, building up to Vimo? My dad worked for Nebad um, for... I mean, most of his career, about 35, 40 years or so, from the time I was born until he retired. Uh, so he got the offer letter the day I was born is what I hear. Oh, wow. That's so nice. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, of course, I get all the credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Wrongly or rightly. Right. So, uh, anyway, so Nabad, uh, so Nabad is into rural livelihoods and financing. Mm-hmm. It's the original NBFC of this country. Uh, it was part of, uh, it was... Uh, really the pillar that drove a lot of the green revolution uh, and then many other programs that have improved rural livelihoods and sustainability right so uh, i used to tag along with him i used to try and understand what he was trying to do i've been to many farm visits with him uh, many of these you know small micro entrepreneur kind of workshop sessions conferences etc uh, when i was a kid so uh, by nature you know it was, these are micro entrepreneurs, most of these, including farmers, right? But So by nature, the fact that you create value out of whatever you own or not own, uh, right, has always been something that's been inspiring, whether it's a farmer who does that or a, uh, you know, or a self-help group that comes together, uh, whatever that is, right? So I think that was the background of how I grew up and uh, Dad always wanted us to get to top tier schools, etc. Naturally happened. Like my brother, me and my sister, all three of us went to Pitspalani. People ask us if we had a family discount. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to Bits. Bits was an interesting place. Uh, and uh, there... Uh, Were you uh, all overlapping as well as, as family? I, I was the luckiest because I overlapped three years with my brother and then he graduated and my sister came in. So I was... Like, I never figured out how to book tickets home because my brother had figured it out. And then I told my sister that, hey, you need to learn this because how will you do this when I'm not around? So I learned everything that my brother was doing for me. So clearly delegation is my strength. <laughs> and it's the first time I've seen someone take so much advantage of being a middle child. Um, yeah, yeah. And you there, you know, people say, hey, my middle child, nobody cares about me. It's either the oldest or the youngest, but. No, I've also recently seen a reel where it says every family needs to have a Capricorn who believes they are the, like, they are the, you know, they are the, they're the most favored child, right? So I've always right. believed. <laughs> I want to act, and therefore, maybe I have manifested that. But I'm like, yeah, we're very close as a family. Um, and I've been lucky, uh, sandwiched between two people who care a lot. Mm. And... Uh, uh, so bits was pretty interesting i think bits has this really amazing culture of until until 10th and 12th everyone is probably what a grades matter etc right and then bits was this world where classes are not mandatory attendance is not mandatory it's absolute it's relative grading not absolute scoring uh right and uh, 
uh, and you can choose your professors you can make your timetable you're given a lot of freedom right mm. so you can actually choose you it makes you think actually uh, giving someone a lot of freedom really makes them think how they want to run their life and what they're trying to get to and what is the fastest path or lowest friction path to be able to get there so all those optimizations were done well uh, right. also bitspilani in those days was 200 kilometers away from any so, pizza or burger so you you were kind of forced to be a little bit entrepreneurial if you had to figure out if you had to any do anything um, yeah. right so i think we were in some ways cocooned but also uh had to be resourceful in many ways uh whether it is about how to hack your calendar timetable grades whatever it was but we had to be resourceful it was not a clearly laid out path and everyone could find a way right so that culture of bits i think is extremely uh important uh in in the background of how many bitsians actually became entrepreneurs later mm-hmm. right uh so uh, that was pretty fantastic and from there i started becoming a little bit more clearer on what i wanted to do i want i was i felt like uh my parents wanted me to go abroad for ms etc i felt like i wanted to stay here i felt more inclined towards ias i had interfaced with some of the public uh sector uh workers through dad's work mm. and i felt that was pretty inspiring and uh, you know being able to even what dad did during his tenure there was impacting hundreds of thousands of lives uh so policy would then be levels above that right and that was extremely inspiring and i knew it would be a lot of hard work um but with that background it's not a not to go for ms and uh, chose to do mba while figuring out the whole is bit uh during mba uh, but i was always keen to go out and learn so during undergrad as well as grad school i did go on my internships outside i had multiple job offers uh there and then i think it all came to a head when I had to decide after business school, and I was still not twenty nine. Twenty nine was the cutoff for IS, so the thought was just work and prepare on the side. That's when I joined McKinsey, um, and uh, did explore a bunch of public sector related stuff. Had an opportunity to actually work with a member of parliament, so on. Uh, chose consciously anyway. Most of my work was at McKinsey was on sales transformation. Worked with very large enterprises across India. Worked in the US for a couple of years. so that skill build like that functional knowledge and expertise was building on the side and then after five years when we moved back to india um uh, decided to uh figure out what to do next and at that point in time policy versus what else was the question mark and then i actually spent time uh meeting people trying to figure out where i could be most uh, in some ways i call it successful but the criteria here is where can i have the most impact uh, in the least friction way um and it just felt like my temperament you know uh need for speed frustration with things not moving etc that kind of a temperament may not be the ideal one uh for you know uh for a bureaucratic position and most people advised me that you know either you can wait for 20 25 years to have a say or you can try to find some other way to get there uh and anyway I had multiple discussions spoke to a lot of mentors and uh it felt like i might be able to have the highest impact by doing something that is uh highly valued and where i can bring my skills right that's what led to the whole entrepreneurship journey um and i love that aspect of what we do here as a company uh, i've always said that hey if it's not about you know a fine just that we've become become a 500 people team every time i look at that number i ask myself if 
these 500 or 400, whatever that number at that point is, right? Uh, are these people learning or feeling that they can go and do this themselves, right? Can they have this kind of impact themselves? Are we doing a multiplier effect or are we just leveraging people to get to some end state of mind, uh, right? And now we have aged enough for us to have alumni who are uh, placed in multiple different, uh, you know, other companies or have set out on their own entrepreneurship journey. I do feel that we have started creating a workforce uh, or started creating talent which can which actually dreams big and uh, grows bravely towards those goals right i do think we are creating that uh, that was one thing i used to love about mckinsey that mckinsey was more like a finishing school uh, right you teach folks a lot through an intense uh, uh, you know what can be seen as a curriculum and then people go out and try to solve big problems right uh, and I'm hoping that some of that is what we can do at Vimo. So walk us through that journey. You know, you decided to start up. It was about the impact. Uh, what you picked this space because it was something you're familiar with, but how yeah. did you kind of make that transition? And, a and bunch of ideas and a wise person, which like my husband <laughs> asked me, what is it that you know really well? Uh, what is it that you know that like you have unique knowledge uh, about and people are willing to pay money to solve? right and that matrix ended up being uh you know um i'd done a lot of work on sales productivity improvement and uh saw a lot of frustration with large enterprises on trying to solve that problem uh, and it felt like something that could be solved through software and Venkat and i my co-founder and i we've been batchmates since bitspilani and uh, uh we felt like together we brought our experience of tech into a real world business problem which is a white space and that's that's how we set up on this journey and how did you guys decide that you would work together i mean was it did you know that right. you would work together right away yeah. or? i've always been very extroverted some of my best ideas come while brainstorming with folks etc and that gives me a lot of energy so i was pretty clear that i would need i would want to do uh, uh the whole entrepreneurship gig with the co-founder Venkar and I were batchmates and bits. We used to do, we were both doing computer science majors. We used to do our assignments together. Uh, and we had a very easy working relationship, like absolute trust. And, you know, I would jump off, he would jump in very smoothly into getting things done. So that friendship continued. We stayed in touch. Um, and uh, he also was looking to move back to India. I was also planning to move back. Um, and somewhere where uh, I think separately, both of us decided to start up. Then we started discussing ideas and agreed that this might be where our skills come to bear in the best way possible. So can you walk through what exactly your initial value proposition was to your first few customers and what, what was the pitch? How did you go about it? So it was fairly simple. Uh, for us, I th the thesis that we had was that large sales teams uh, become, the larger the sales team is, the more, uh, the less productive it becomes. There is a lot of time that goes into training, motivating, aligning everyone, uh, driving playbooks in terms of what are the things to do to get the best outcomes, etc. Uh, the larger the org, the bigger the problem. So our goal was, hey, how do we solve that problem and use tech? And mobile first was a very new thing. Cloud first was a very new thing, especially financial services. Right? Uh, so then we went to people we thought would have this problem. And that was across multiple sectors. 
started having conversations with them on, hey, in terms of managing your sales teams or meeting your outcomes, what are the things that you would like visibility into and what drives decision making, right? And whatever that was, we would start making mock-ups and trying to build journeys and trying to test it out with them, uh, right? So practically, we sold our first to our first two, three major customers on the back of like mock-ups. And then Venkat started building that out. Uh, and our bar was right from day zero that if this is a important enough problem, people will be willing to pay because we know that there is no other solution doing this. And if you really, right. So that became a threshold for who filters into, you know, where we spend energy, um, right. And that probably was one of the wisest spots. We didn't look for people giving us opportunities to do something. We look for people who are willing to pay to solve a problem. And uh, over uh, you know, as we spoke to more and tried to layer that filter and as that filter became higher, who will pay the most, who will pay, pay the fastest, right? Suddenly somewhere this whole financial services, financial services is a very commoditized product. Everyone has a loan, everyone has a account, right? Everyone has a credit card. So your differentiation comes from your distribution strength um, and therefore your need to solve that and stay on top of it is extremely critical. And these organizations are huge. And they're still growing because financial inclusion is still like single digit uh, in this country, right? So, or in most places, uh, depending on the product. So naturally that became in retrospect, it's easy to draw a pattern in a straight line. But I think some of the design principles were, you know, work with those who are willing to pay and pay enough to, you know, justify that ROI on our time spent and for themselves. That, that's really helpful kind of walking us through that thought process. Can you also tell us, what your product does and how does it fit into the sales ecosystem yeah. i think for people like me who are not as familiar we know about crms like hubspot and, and salesforce yeah. where do you guys so why not use my financial advisory teams to be able to drive better sales outcomes um think of it as a mobile first solution that think of these as organization with 200 2000 20 000, 50 000 sellers distributed in the field and uh, there is high levels of attrition, new people coming into this group, etc. Uh, they have a large community of customers that they need to engage, uh, prospect into it, and so on, right? So uh, Vimo is a mobile first solution that helps them with next best actions. It suggests what are the five things you could do to meet your outcomes the fastest, lowest friction way, right? And that in the back end takes care of what your customers need, uh, you know, what to position to them, how to communicate with them. A lot of that intelligence is built and nudged to you uh, in the form of simple, actionable nudges, right? So that that's how it operates. How, how did you go about really, you know, fleshing out this value proposition? You 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 spoke to your first few customers, you, you had a big problem, you, you kind of had a general framework for, for tackling it. How we, do you go about I think in the initial yeah. conversations, the ones that moved fastest was where this was a burning need versus a nice to have. Yes, I can. I would love to have a tool versus, hey, you know what? My targets have increased 20%. I literally cannot do this without knowing what's happening on the ground, right? And I remember us doing whiteboarding with customers for who this was a must have product with a tight timeline linked to their own goals, um, business goals, right? And uh, then we saw a lot of agility. Ultimately, we probably uh, got pulled where there was speed, right? Where our clients showed speed. Uh, and that that itself is the whole product market fit definition, right? You, uh, you automatically get attracted towards where there is speed. And if there's enough of that happening in our cluster, you know that is where your, uh, the market for your product is. And then we went and like with the, we kind of understood the journeys that 
multiple similar customers might need. Went back with our point of view on what if we were able to do ABC and they loved 80% of the idea and then 20% they wanted to add a few angles which were what is contextual to them. Right. We converted that into a mock-up, built it out, launched it with them in I think six to eight weeks or so and then tracked certain metrics like active usage, screen, actions. Uh, yeah, we instrumented the product and tried to track engagement very, very seriously. Right? One of the biggest differences between most and all enterprise products and ours, um, especially sales tech, is that in Vimo, we actually track and expose our adoption and engagement directly to the customer. There is no tool out there, no major CRM that actually says, hey, at this point in time, these many of your users are live because in most cases, only 10% of their users are using in a month. In Vimo's case, 70-80% are live this minute. If I open the dashboard, you'll see that number, uh, right? Across eight countries and 300,000 users. And to be able to maintain that from day zero, our adoption was 70% plus and today it is the case. And to be able to maintain that, there has been an insane amount of focus and DNA that we've built in the company that that matters. Our NPS is 54 Average software NPS is 23. I think best-in-class SaaS is 34 or 35, right? Our NPS is 54. I remember our product head, when we were, when we were 34, 35, someone said, let's have a target, let's make it 40. Who knows? Like, it was just pulled out of thin air, right? And all of us looked at each other and said, why not? Uh, and today it is 54 and it is possible. Maybe it can actually get to 60, right? But there have been mechanisms set in place where constantly someone is looking at what can we improve on engagement, uh, and experience right and that differentiates us massively from most enterprise tech and uh, if we said we are going to work with sellers to help them do more sellers don't like to be managed uh, right so and that is why most tools fail in sales tech and by being able to build something that sellers actually like to use and helps them we were able to break this uh, constant cycles of failures that uh, most of these enterprises were having in deploying sales tech, right? And uh, like that has these, like we have one in, in good years, like non-COVID type of years, we have had 145 plus, 145% uh, plus net revenue retention. It's, it's basically a dollar of your revenue automatically goes in that customer base to a dollar and 45 cents the next year, right? That kind of growth in the, and that's a very powerful tool for SaaS companies to grow. Uh, Right. So all of that has been fed by the original design principles. And so how did you, I mean, you spoke about how your, your team was kind of working towards this. Can you tell us some of the structures that you put in place and how you actually built out the team? So uh, in terms of, I said, there are many, many different angles. In terms yes. of keeping user experience and adoption and usage, that basic value proposition in mind while designing everything, there are teams that constantly look at NPS, there are teams that constantly track, there are customer success teams whose job in the first three months of deployment is to get to 80-90% daily usage. Uh, that, that's the first KPI okay. they have to match. So there are teams whose goals are this, right? There is a team in product that is looking at NPS, seeing what are the what is the feedback that's taking us down. Uh, and how do we fix that, which becomes a stream, a co constant, a continuous work stream in product and engineering, et cetera, right? So there are teams structured to look at this, uh, right? And basically what gets tracked gets, uh, what gets tracked uh, gets improved, right? So that's that's how this part of it runs. In terms of how we build the team, I think it's dramatically different how we build the first 30, 50 people team versus how we build now, uh, right? Now it's very highly specialized 
skills there is weightage to cultural fit agility those kind of stuff but also there is highly specialized hiring that we do uh in the, but the fundamental principle is are they making the team better when we bring them in uh, or do they have the potential to make the team better right even a fresher can make the team better by bringing in you know agility customer orientation ability to listen and learn fast right it just doesn't have to be on you know here is the person who is like freshers are not the people you look at to build something fantastic because of technical knowledge right but they can still culturally make you a better team uh and similarly for senior folks uh right and bagram have always believed that if you're hiring someone you're probably hiring them because they know this much better than us whatever aspect of it is uh right and in general we have uh you know we have spent more time choosing the folks we bring in than managing them i can easily say that i've probably spent 40 50 hours making sure that this is the right person especially for leadership positions and then i don't need to spend 40 50 hours to manage them in like in the in the next 6 months right so uh those are fundamental principles but on day 0 i didn't know how to interview product managers i i didn't know how to interview engineers etc and i used to go around ask people who are the th- like tell me who do you admire as a product manager and someone would name someone in ola and then i would go try and meet that person and say they'll be very confused like why are you interview like are you interviewing me for a b2b position i was like i'm not interviewing you i want to know how do you interview people and how how were you interviewed right what are the questions they asked to or what are the questions you ask as a product manager when you hire a product person right it was very interesting the things that they do and i started mimicking some of that stuff uh, right and started learning on how to do this so everything we were trying to do was the first time for venkat and me practically you do none of this at mcinzy right so uh but but there are ways to learn there are people who have done stuff like this before you know maybe some kind of general advice for people especially in b2b sales it's always difficult uh what are some of the things that that work well what worked for you guys and, and for founders who are starting up what are some tips that is i would say in the 0 to 1 stage the number one thing that matters is that your customer values your product that they would be scared if if it's taken away uh right uh you have to create that level of value and you have to be extremely extremely honest uh right and hopefully you're doing it in a space where there is enough of those customers that's the whole damn thing right most of those you'll probably discover in the 1 to 10 stage uh homogeneity of the market for the war. like how big is the homogeneous market whether it's a geography if you start in india suddenly tam becomes a limit if you're starting in us usually you do not have you know until you are 50 million towards the 100 million journeys when you would probably look at international right so those choices do make a difference uh but being extremely honest about the value that you're delivering to a client uh it comes from you actually tracking the right metrics on outcomes for the customer not about pushing features but actual outcomes build build only two features that's fine too and you have to have enough conviction to be able to challenge the customer on features versus outcomes right otherwise suddenly you're building a whole spread and like another me too thing uh and the customer should be willing to pay uh and worried about switching you off after a poc right if you're building something of that quality in the 0 to 1 stage the 1 to 10 becomes fairly easy then most of the 1 to 10 you're figuring out are go to market related stuff being able to build sales execution scale sales execution related stuff not really fundamental questions on your product uh, and yeah i mean you did a very interesting thing you started with india for a saas company especially b2b saas um it's not the typical style and everyone also thinks that you know india ke baad you should go to the us but you did southeast asia and then you went to the us yeah uh, talk us through that thought process is it 
related to your conviction about India as well in some sense. Uh, this was not really like we when we moved back from the US. We knew that if we were doing this, we were doing this for the for the global market, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was just easier to do the initial product market fit, and suddenly we found momentum very quickly. Okay. Uh, that was the whole white space thing, right? Like from the from like a hundred k to the one million journey happened very very fast for us, even before we could consolidate in our minds what we were doing and how to take it elsewhere, right? And then suddenly mm-hmm. the demand from neighboring became easy, easier low hanging fruit for us. Um, and these were larger tickets, right? So it's not like you can sell them on a phone in the US. It required us to, at even at in early stage, by the time we were Series A, I think our ACVs were tending towards 75, 80K. So at mm. that point, these were not tickets that you could close on a phone or through a partner as right. a new product, a new category, um, right? There was a lot of value selling that was required. So suddenly global meant field sales for us, like having teams on ground, uh, right? And that kind of like, by the time we built momentum towards that, COVID happened. So then most of that was a timeline with many macro external factors, etc. But from the time we were able to travel post-COVID, again, we have been going hard behind trying to crack US as a market and then having all the wins there now, building the execution momentum and so on. So I wouldn't say that the judgment on, uh, you know, US is the biggest market for enterprise and try to win there first. I don't think that is different. Our timeline just evolved in a certain way. Uh, right? And the, the the shock that has been for us is how big can how big Asia turned out to be, right? Uh, right. We didn't expect to have the scale that we have today, just servicing Asia, a large part of that, like a significant, meaningful amount of that from India, and still the upside and growth that we see. I, maybe it's the vertical. It's not just the vertical that we picked, right? Because even if you look at tech and uh, selling into tech as an industry, or selling into retail as an industry, or selling into media as an industry all these verticals are exploding in asia right mm-hmm. so i don't think anyone anticipated what asia could be we actually like thought maybe 1 million or not more in asia right? right and that's what that was a usual vc wisdom also so all of us have been surprised by how big asia can be uh, right uh, but that has been a pleasant surprise and has fed people for longer than uh, they expected uh, but that doesn't change the fact that in in a horizontal solution or a category U.S. tends to be usually the largest market. And what were the other surprises that you saw, not just related to geography, but in general, like were there some hypotheses that you had uh, that kind of proved out to be the opposite once you started building out the company or once you scaled? Anything top of mind, maybe top one or two things. So this was a big one. I do firmly believe now that you can build a like 100 million enterprise SaaS company, even if you looked at you know, India plus some few markets in Asia. That's wow. that was a shock. Like the path is different. You have to know that is the path right from the beginning. Right. Uh, uh, it may look slightly different because it's not a homogeneous market when you think of Asia, okay. but it is possible. Is what we've realized, and that in one vertical. So I mean, for people who are horizontal, it's probably uh, you know even more easy. It, like there are ways to do it. It's not the typical SaaS playbook, though. Right. right? It requires M and A. It requires consolidation for speed, etc. More for speed in a smaller market. But it can be done. That's that has been a, a eye opening thing. Uh, can you sell large enter into large enterprises like Berkshire uses our product, to, like Tokyo Marine kind of folks use our product, right? Can you sell to these kind of enterprises by building a product out of India? I think that like enterprise grade product out of India, uh, where also configuration, customization, local support, etc., is needed. That has always been a question mark for investors and even founders, right? But that we felt is something that's now proven, done and dusted, mm-hmm. can be done uh, 
right? And there is a lot of faith in being able to do the product and engineering for world from India. Mm. That win a category, uh, right? That's been a pleasant surprise uh, too. Interesting. So the longest time we have wondered if we need to build there to be able to service that market, right? But it That's seems like we can build and service from here. We'll have to sell locally. That's different. Fascinating. And uh, what does the next few years look like? I generally ask, what, what do you think Vimo will be in 2033? I think we are, our mission for the next three, four years is pretty straightforward. There are a bunch of new markets where we have had product market fit and initial the 1 to 10 journeys are over. These markets now to, who need to go through the 10 to 100 kind of a journey, right? Mm-hmm. which are actually the major market, big markets, US including. Uh, so heads down execution for us um, towards that goal is the number one priority. And that's actually very comforting <laughs> because when you are going through the zero to one stage or one to 10 stage in these markets, there are many iterations and question marks on things that you need to do. But this stage where you need to now focus and bring predictable execution, um, you know, is a, is a, is a good problem statement for the next three to four years of, for us. Understand. And the final question, why we call this founders unfiltered. What's one piece of unfiltered advice or feedback you received as an entrepreneur that really changed your perspective and brutal honest would be helpful. You don't need to reveal who gave you that feedback. Sure, sure. Okay. No, that's fine. I think even from McKinsey times, people used to say that, I mean, folks used to be a little bit scared because they're off me. Apparently I've heard that because they felt I was extremely judgmental, had a very high bar on judging people. But I think the problem was not like having a high bar on uh, judging people, but probably being uh, uh, single dimension or limited in my dimensions on how I look at people, Mm. Uh, right? Even at McKinsey, the transition happened where we moved from, a, you know, trying to coach people on what they're not good at versus looking at what the strengths of someone are and how to use that to deliver excellence in outcomes, right? Not Mm. to bring everyone to the average, but to pick a strength and make them excellent, right? Uh, I think it was called strengths-based coaching or so. And that was eye-opening. That was eye-opening. And uh, I don't think it's still easy for everyone to implement, especially if you are the type I am, you want to move fast, want to get there quickly and get to black and white answers. It's easy to judge and write off, uh, uh, you know, uh, certain things. Uh, But I do believe... It was a lot of conscious, unconscious effort, but I do believe I've become someone who now can look at uh, a, a situation or a person and automatically lash on to, hey, here is something that is an outstanding strength of this person and how do we make that successful? Uh, how do we use that to, you know, make it work for both of us rather than, you know, harp on what probably is a nagging uh, limitation of that person. The strength-based coaching is quite interesting. And, you know, now that I've spent a decent amount of time with startups and in the ecosystem, I think a lot of people still focus on removing the weaknesses. Rather yeah, than... so it's the basic joke. I mean, I don't know if I heard this or I made this up myself, but this whole Albert Einstein would not have been successful at McKinsey. That was, <laughs> that's the easiest way to say it, right? Like, now what do you say? Yes. Uh, so, and that made me look at people in a very, very different light. Awesome. On that note, Yamini, thank you so much. Uh, it was an awesome chat. Very good quote to end with. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing so openly with us. Thank you so much, folks. It was lovely being here.